business owner or at least in charge, office manager, whatever it might be, GM, making decisions for your business, and you look around, nothing really makes you stand out. Garage experts, I recommend that you reach out to them. You may say, we don't have a garage. We don't need a garage. Now, of course, I had my garage transformation done. Part of that, aside from the customized storage, was the epoxy flooring that the, the color schemes, there's hundreds from which to choose. The cleanup is so incredibly easy. It acts as a moisture barrier. It is just such an incredible way to go. So, I mean, if you are a business that's just hell-bent on carpet, then this may not be your cup of tea. But if you utilize any form of hard flooring, I recommend that you find out what it is they can do for you. And uh, and it'll really pop and stand out visually as well. A lot of times things that, that have such a great usage in terms of uh, their utility purposes don't have the pop, don't have the the look to them, or vice versa. But with Garage Experts, you get both. Mark and Shelley Long, uh, incredible people. You can... Find out what they can do for you. Free consultation. They're not high pressure. They're not, you know, I can just tell you that. So you don't need to worry about, oh, I'm going to get them here. And then they're going to start pushing me. And, oh, here, if you sign today, yada, yada. And, uh, oh, I can only give you this deal for two weeks. And, and oh, we got to upcharge you. You're not going to get that with them. Garage experts, you can find them under Nick's endorsements at ksgf.com. There's been an interesting wrench thrown into the inevitability of the omnibus bill that Congress was prepared to send to Obama's desk. And that is courtesy of Mike Lee. Mike Lee has introduced an amendment that would tie certain funding to the Biden administration, I think it's Homeland Security funding, to the Biden administration utilizing its executive powers to extend this this uh, 42 drama that's been going on with the border. And the, the reason that this is a potential wrench is because there are a lot of, if you've noticed, Democrats have, many of them have gotten to the point that they are no longer pretending that there's not a crisis at the border. Uh, they have calculated that they have you they, they've they've done that long enough and that they're not going to be able to get away with it any longer particularly with this potential expiration of of the the title 42 and we're just going to see from bad to worse and they, they're just not going to be able to deny it through a whole nother election that's why gavin newsom went down there you've got another a number of other democrats kelly of arizona saying yep the uh, the border security is an absolute failure you got cinema who's now quote an independent uh saying that and a number of other democrats that, that are that are acknowledging this and so mike lee has said all right this omnibus bill here i want an amendment on there that ties funding to the obama administration extending that that uh, title 42 
And there is also a push to have the threshold of approval drop from 61 down to 41. And what is occurring here is instead of the easy Democrat answer of being like, no, we're not going to do that. They're worried about the political implications. They're worried with getting tagged as being partially responsible for the border crisis. Right now, it is seen as a Biden issue. And, mark my words, they're, and they're already trying this. They're, they're trying to blame Republicans for it. Well, here, Mike Lee is saying, all right, while Title 42 is certainly not an answer, it going away is going to make things even worse. And so he's putting the ball in the Senate Democrats' court here and, and saying, okay, well, here, we're going to try to keep at least that hole plugged with this amendment here instead of it getting worse and forcing the Democrats to either agree with that or not agree with that, which would, of course, allow politically Republicans to point out the fact that that, you know, whatever subsequent chaos occurs because of Title 42 going away, that we had an opportunity to change that. But Democrats stopped it. So they're at a bit of a standstill now. This is a really, really smart move by Mike Lee. McConnell, scratch that, Schumer, who of course is in charge of of navigating this as leader of the Senate, has indicated that this is not going to be taken care of by Thursday or Friday, which was the original plan, because they're not able to get this figured out. Democrats are, are freaked out about how to deal with this component of it. suggesting that he might keep them in session through the next week, to which Mitch McConnell's saying, nope, not. I said we're going to be out of here by Friday. We're going to be out of here by Friday. And Mitch McConnell's now saying maybe we should just do the temporary spending bill, the ga- the, the stopgap measure, which is what the conservative Republicans have been wanting to do from the beginning, instead of passing this monstrosity of a spending bill that's only going to pile on to the inflation issues that we've been having. So what appeared to be this inevitable uh, passage, now because of this amendment, might force a temporary spending measure in order to prevent government from shutting down. Because, see, Wednesday's the, the, the deadline here when you know, it's going to shut down, which you and I know always gets blown way out of proportion, but it's not something they want to deal with. And Democrats may just give in, say, fine, you know, that's what we'll do. Let's do it. Let's get it over with. And then we'll worry about the fighting after the first of the year. Fingers crossed. That's what happens, because then Republicans in the House will be controlling things over there. We've got Author of the Week coming up here in just a couple of moments. Uh, Weather, of course, it's making its way into the area. The heavy snowfall is right now, according to the National Weather Service, supposed to hit us around 11 a.m., though we'll see it before then, but that's when it's supposed to be the stuff that's maybe a little more uh, difficult to maneuver around in. Um, And, of course, we'll keep you updated with that throughout the day. Right now, Jason Rima with news. Rain and freezing rain possible in the next hour or two, and that could make roads slick. The National Weather Service says snow will start falling later this morning. The heaviest band hitting the Springfield area around 11 o'clock. Visibility is expected to be very low. 
Meantime, Captain John Hotz with the Highway Patrol is urging stranded drivers to remain in their cars today. We have people killed every single year who slide off the roadway. They get out and they walk around their vehicle and somebody else comes along, loses control in that same area and then their vehicle strikes the person out there. MoDOT's Central District Engineer Jason Schaefer says he's most concerned about the cold weather affecting their ability to treat the roads. The temperatures are going to be well below zero, and at these temperatures, our chemicals start to lose effectiveness quite rapidly. Governor Parson has issued an executive order activating the Missouri National Guard and the Missouri State Emergency Operations Plan for state and local response. Police in Branson are investigating an artillery shell that was found in a wilderness area. It was found at the Lakeside Forest Wilderness Area on Owen Lane off Highway 76 Country Boulevard. I'm Jason Rima, Springfield Stock, 1041. All right, so that winter storm warning till midnight. Counties long north of uh, 60, winter advisory south, wind chill warnings noon through uh, noon today through noon Saturday for counties along the north of 16. You heard Rima mentioned that the, the rain, freezing rain component could get here within the next hour. Uh, then snow, of course. Right now, the heavy stuff, National Weather Service in terms of snow, probably 11 o'clock or so this morning. And then those uh, brutal wind chills down 30 below, perhaps even more. Uh, particularly into the overnight hours. Author of the Week, sponsored by ABC Books, here in just a couple... I think you're going to enjoy this one. This guy is an environmentalist, but he's a conservative one who recognizes that pretty much everything that the government says we should be doing in order to help the environment not only doesn't help, but generally does more harm than good. You're listening to Nick Reed in the Morning on Springfield's Talk 1041. Springfield's Talk 1041. I am Nick Reed. It is Thursday, which means it's time for Author of the Week, sponsored by ABC Books on North Glenstone. And this week we have author Todd Myers. Uh, Time to think small how nimble environmental technologies can solve the planet's biggest problems. And uh, let me ask you this, instead of laying out a biography on your behalf, uh, there are the, I guess you would say, traditional environmentalists. You're not necessarily considered traditional in the conventional wisdom sense. Is that correct? Uh, well, I've, I've done a lot of things in the environment, but yes, I am not a sort of standard on the left. I'm generally on the center right, but... Um, you know, I, I live uh, in a forest. I am surrounded by nature. I'm a beekeeper. I love the environment very much. And I've worked in environmental policy for about two decades, including at state agencies and elsewhere. So, um, yeah, well, I guess I'm not traditional. Um, it is important. And I recognize that environmentalism and concern about the environment doesn't recognize um, political lines. Uh, one of the areas that I, I uh, would argue that you would have a greater deal of success as being a leading expert in free market environmental policy. And anytime you see the government uh, embark on some sort of endeavor and the private sector do the same, private sector seems to win out every single time. Yet when it comes to the environment, we're told that is the answer. We've got to have the government step in because, after all, why would people... uh, uh, particularly those who run industries, uh, ever want to do anything to help the environment. And since they're not motivated by that, uh, they're clearly not going to be focused on it. So we must have the government step in. Um, so so what of that? So I understand why people think like that, because actually the government has had some success. So in the 1970s, when we faced air and water pollution problems, 
we passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and we created the EPA. And guess what? It worked. Our air and water are much cleaner because those types of problems were very well suited to government responses, a very few sources of major pollution. But our problems today are not suited to that. They're very different. They're distributed. They're small problems where the efforts of lots of small people doing little bits and adding up over time is much more effective. And you see that you know, in a variety of very big challenges that we face today, whether it's ocean plastic, whether it is climate change, individual people, empowering people, not politicians, is what we see solving these sorts of problems. So I understand why people have the reflex to think that big government is the approach, but thanks to new technology and because the problems are different, we need a new approach. And, and fortunately, we're seeing lots of success around the world of people doing exactly that. I know you write to some degree uh, about this. In fact, you've got a, a story about a for-profit company that is making inroads or saving lives, forests, providing clean, fresh water in Africa, but it's actually the government that, that's undermining that. Tell us yeah. about that, if you would. Well, I think it's a perfect example of how small technology really can reach problems anywhere across the globe. So in Africa, access to clean water is a problem. And so what typically would happen is the government or a non-government organization would install a pump. But about 40% of pumps break after a year and a half, and then they have to wait around for that NGO or government to come back. And often it takes months and months. So what a group of ex-UN employees did was they created an internet-connected uh, pump. Mm. Um, that charges about a penny a day, um, and people can turn it on, and then it charges them based on how much water they use. So there's an incentive to conserve because they don't want to waste money. But the other thing that it does is that it creates a revenue stream. So for the company and for people in the area, if that pump breaks, they're losing money. And so what ends up happening is, is that they fix it quickly. And what happened used to take months, now takes about a day. And you can actually go, the company is called eWater Services, to their webpage, and you can see what percentage of their pumps are working. About 96% of their pumps are working. And this is not just good for access to water, it's good for the environment, because if you don't have access to clean water, what you do, and typically it's the women of the village who will go uh, hike, get water from a local stream or river, and then they have to boil it. And that means cutting down trees. And one of the leading causes of deforestation is cutting down trees to cook food and boil water. So it also reduces deforestation. It's really powerful. But in one of the countries where they are in in Africa, the government is running for re-election. And one of their election promises is free water for everyone. <laughs> so they are actually undermining uh, what is a system that is working very well. And I spoke with the head of eWater Services, like I said, who worked for the UN, who did this as a nonprofit. And she said, what we're going to end up happening is a year from now, we're going to be where we were before, where the government is going to be responsible for fixing wells that have been broken, and they'll just sit for months and people will be worse off. Oh, the siren song of free. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, aside from the, the philosophical discussion regarding is it government's place, should government be promoting it? One, one of the things that just drives me absolutely nuts is – does it actually work? And in here, and you're going to know much more about this than I do, but just as an outside observer, I, I watched the discussion regarding the the government's push for 
green energy in the name of electric vehicles. And, and we keep hearing, among other things, how it's going to help us not be reliant on, on foreign countries and, and it's environmentally friendly. But from just what I, I understand and read of some experts is that uh, the, 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 um, the materials that are needed for much of the production uh, is not an extraction process that is environmentally friendly and the vast majority of it comes from companies uh, in China. And so here, not only is it not environmentally friendly, but it's making us as if not more reliant on, on foreign countries. And so it seems as if even in the areas that they have decided, well, this is government's place, they're not doing what they say they're going to do. Well, and it's very difficult because the information is hard to get. So how do you know whether that electric vehicle you're buying or the wind turbine or something else is actually doing more harm than good? Because full environmental impacts along those supply chains can be very opaque. But that's changing. And what's remarkable is now using um, transparent ledgers like blockchain. And, you know, blockchain is kind of cool and trendy. It doesn't have to be used for everything. But one of the advantages is, is that it is transparent and people can see, okay, how much energy is being used? How many minerals are being used? Or in the case of fisheries, right? If you want to make sure that the fish that you're buying at the store was caught legally and sustainably, in many cases, you can now see that. On tuna cans, they actually have a little scan code that you can scan to see where your tuna came from. And so these are really difficult and complicated questions to try to figure out how to help the environment for the reasons you just identified. But technology is allowing us to see, oh, okay, this, you know, this decision I made isn't as good as I thought it was because I didn't have the information. But now that I do, I can make a better decision. And the second thing about that is that it connects the decisions to individuals who care about the results. Oftentimes, politicians care more about the image and wanting mm -hmm. to get sort of the political boost rather than actually the outcome. And when things don't work, they actually you try to hide it because they don't want to admit that they were wrong. If I make a mistake and I'm doing something wrong and I have and the information now shows me, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore, I'm going to change because my interest is in doing it right. And I think that's why switching the power from politicians to people is more effective environmentally. We're talking with our author of the week, Todd Myers. The book is Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. This is another area of great frustration I have, and frankly, why it is that the what we would consider, I wouldn't even say traditional environmentalists, but those that are deemed the great experts in our culture and our society have really no credibility with me because you will – you get data and and you you see that their efforts are not only failing but oftentimes in the name of the environment things get worse but they still get awards they still get flown right. to european countries to be presented <laughs> these great awards and and told how wonderful they are for the environment and so i think to myself i can't listen to these people why do those who who claim at least that they are doing what it is that they can for the environment continue to lavish praise on those who carry out efforts that are not beneficial to the environment? I think there's a variety of reasons. One I just outlined, which is that politicians want to look like they're doing good, so they you know, uh, work very hard to cultivate an environmentally green image, even when the things that they do are not green. Um, and the second is simply ideology, that there are people who, who don't trust 
private sector initiatives and believe that government is the only way to do these things. So that sort of ideological overlay um, forces them only to look at a narrow subset of potential environmental solutions. And the problem for that, for people on the center right, like myself, is that it makes us cynical. It makes us skeptical about environmental issues generally. And so too often the result is, is that conservatives who care about the environment, and if you look at a map of you know, sort of where the conservatives live in the country who live near natural resources, sound like they don't care because they're reacting to, to exactly what you're talking about there, which is um, the appearance that you know, they want to be green even if they're not doing things that help the environment. But rather than being cynical about environment, we should actually embrace it and say, no, 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 our approach of connecting people to the environment, of empowering them to do good things in ways that are consistent with personal freedom and economics is the better way to do it. And I can tell you that there is a large percentage of people on the environmental left, sincere environmentalists, who see the same thing. In my book, many of the stories of the people who are doing some of the coolest things uh, with technology and to help the planet and to protect species are on the left, and they have the same frustrations um, that many conservatives have, which is that government is not doing what it should be doing and is not effective. So the, the beauty of empowering people is, is that it crosses partisan lines and brings people together to focus on environmental solutions rather than on environmental politics. You know, in your book, you give just tremendous number of, of different examples and, and evidence of uh, government's outcome versus private sector. Uh, if you would, um, tell us a bit about the California utilities, and they, they've spent billions to create this grid capacity battery storage. Yeah. Well, it's just a perfect example of how powerful technology is, and small technology. So in September, California was facing blackouts uh, because temperatures were high and they had shortages. Um, and so one of the things that they have done is they have spent, as you said, lots and lots of money building batteries because they have sun in the middle of the day. But peak demand, when there is most electricity demand, is in the evening. And so they want to spend the money to shift the energy from the middle of the day, store it, and then use it at night, or in the early evening, rather. But when they were facing blackouts, they simply sent out a text to um, homeowners saying, hey, we're facing blackouts. Conserve where you can. And within 15 minutes, hmm. demand dropped by 2,000 megawatts which is more than uh, half of the total value of batteries that there are in California. So think about the, the value, how much they spent, billions of dollars to create those batteries. And one text was equivalent to all of that battery power. And so I just think it is a remarkably dramatic example of the power of lots of small actions. People think that, you know, since climate change or other environmental problems are big, that we have to have big government or big solutions, when in fact, the power of lots of people each doing their own small part and pulling together can be really effective. And I think the California energy crisis this year is really an important, it's a great example of, of how we can address problems in that sort of small approach. Final question. Uh, so much, I mean, well, news reports all the time. You get environmental stories, uh, whether it's just about weather or efforts. And there are certain cliches almost that, that I think are, are just accepted as being true, their conventional wisdom. What is, if there is one thing 
that gets talked about, reported on, accepted, that is a massive misconception about either you know global warming, climate change, the environment itself, uh, the efforts to combat it? What is there one thing that just drives you nuts when you hear it? <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> um, well, I, I give some examples in the book, but I will tell you. Uh, so I live in Washington State, and um, we in Washington State think that we're leaders on fighting climate change. And one of the things that the government has done here is subsidize rooftop solar panels. Well, if, if people know anything about Seattle, they know it's rainy. And in <laughs> fact, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory has rated Western Washington, where Seattle is, as one of, if not the worst place for rooftop solar in the country. And yet government spends lots and lots of money on it because it is politically popular. If you want to spend government money to reduce CO2 emissions, that's fine. Uh, but you should make sure that you get the maximum bang for the buck for every dollar you spend. And what we see, not just in Washington, but at the federal level with the Inflation Reduction Act and other things like that, where we're spending lots and lots of money on uh, efforts to reduce CO2 emissions, is that the cost of those programs, compared to how much environmental benefit they do, is extremely high. The beauty of empowering people is that I'm going to want to try to save money. I want to try to reduce my amount of electricity use, gasoline, other things like that, so that I actually am saving money while saving the planet. Um, whereas government, cost seems to be no object, and we spend lots and lots of money for virtually no environmental benefit. We need to change that. The more serious you think climate change is, the more you should demand that every dollar is spent well, and our current political system is not set up that way. Empowering people, on the other hand, people will find the way to get the maximum environmental benefit for every dollar. Our author of the week, sponsored by ABC Books on North Glenstone, Todd Myers. The book again, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Springfield's Talk 1041. I'm Nick Reed. Hear about it. Hear about I, know, it. I know I'm beating a dead horse here. Talk about it. Talk about but it. the hypocrisy and the double standards kind of unreal. On Springfield's Talk 1041. You're listening to Nick Reed in the Morning on Springfield's Talk 1041. First alert forecast sponsored by St. Clair of the Ozarks Home Improvements. Of course, winter storm warning till midnight uh, for counties along north of 60. Winter weather advisory until midnight for counties south of 60. Windchill warning from noon today through noon Saturday. Counties along and north of 60. And the pre- precipitation making its way into the area. Uh, we're expecting it to uh, eventually turn to snow heavy by around 11 a.m., at least according to uh, the, the the tracking as it is now. And those really cold temperatures. I mean, I'm sure at this point everyone's pretty aware of it. Temperatures dropping uh, today down to uh, zero with the wind chill. Uh, making it down uh, to 30, 35 below potentially, and it's going to continue along that pathway. Uh, we will get rid of the the wind component come Saturday with a high of 19 and Christmas sunny, a high of 28. The January 6th committee, their, their uh, criminal referral uh, has absolutely nothing whatsoever to it. 
Uh, even we talked yesterday about one liberal reporter tweeted out that it had as much weight as Bozo the Clown, you know, using crayons or whatever to write it. I mean, there was nothing. There. They just put the words criminal referral on basically just a bunch of complaining about Trump in order to make it sound like there was something there. Now, where there is something is with the Republican response, the investigation that they have done with the very limited ability they have actually had. Uh, and this is why the January 6th committee needs to be reformed after it's dissolved once Republicans are in charge. Because what what we're seeing in actual proof by communication is that what occurred on January 6th, they all knew it was going to happen. They all knew that it was going to happen. And I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi. I'm talking about Capitol Hill Police. It was not a surprise. The one thing that isn't being articulated here is what I believe is the unavoidable truth is that they let it happen because they wanted it to happen. Contemporaneous emails and text messages prove Pelosi's staff involved in failed security planning ahead of Capitol riot a month after the January 6th. Capitol riot, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defected any suggestion suggestion that she or her staff could have influenced the security that failed that day when the Capitol building was breached. Quote, I have no power over the Capitol Police. That's just a blatant lie. Two years later, that claim is directly challenged by contemporaneous text and email messages made public by five House Republicans showing that her staff had direct contact with the officials who planned the security and even edited some of the plans and notifications in the fateful day before tragedy struck. The revelations released Yesterday, in a House GOP report obtained by Just the News, are prompting serious questions about whether the January 6th Capitol breach could have been prevented while creating a new push for Republicans to summon Pelosi for testimony after they take over the House next month. Representative Troy Nels, a Republican from Texas, said January 6th should have never happened. The reason that they weren't, there wasn't a proper security presence on that day goes right to the Speaker's staff and the Speaker's office added Representative Jim Jordan, who is soon to be chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The report, which also includes the work of Representative Jim Banks, Republican Indiana, Rodney Davis, Illinois, Kelly Armstrong, provided a meticulous fact-based account of exactly how Pelosi's staff began meeting and communicating with security planners in the House Sergeant of Arms office in early December of 2020, continuing all the way through the final 48 hours before the January 6th event. Those communications were occurring as as Capitol Police began receiving detailed reports that extremist groups were discussing storming the Capitol, attacking lawmakers, targeting the tunnels beneath the complex, and blocking the planned certification of the 2020 election results. Which, of course, what's interesting about this is that defies their claim that the attack occurred because of that speech that Trump gave. Capitol Police whistleblowers told the congressman that there were ample and detailed warnings that violence could occur on January 6th, but the leadership of the Capitol Police failed to adjust the security plan to address the threat, while the political leadership in Congress repeatedly refused to provide resources to secure the building. One officer discussed how he went to the Capitol totally unaware that the threat assessment existed with only a police cap and his equipment. 
Uh, in other words, he went in there not knowing what was to come because Pelosi's office kept it secret. Others revealed that congressional security leaders turned down resources like armed officers or National Guard troops, which Trump offered, ahead of the event because of concern about the political optics. The $600 million a year Capitol Police, quote, was set up to fail and there has been scant signs of progress towards addressing those weaknesses since the attack the lawmakers warned. While the mainstream media and Democrats suggested Pelosi and congressional leaders were not to blame for the security failures, internal messages of House security planners pointedly slammed Pelosi and her congressional appropriations or appropriators for failing to provide the resources needed to secure the building. Now, we've got to get a, a quick break here, and then I want to continue on with some of the actual text messages in which you have the, the, the people involved, many within the Capitol Hill police, noting that Pelosi's office was blocking them and preventing them from keeping things safe. You're listening to Nick Reed in the Morning on Springfield's Talk 1041. Pelosi, January 6th story unravels as evidence mounts. The Capitol breach was preventable. It was known. Apparently, Trump was the one who... And we knew this to some degree. The only one that was proactively trying to prevent any sort of violence from occurring, while Democrats actively prevented the prevention of it from occurring. After Pelosi forced House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving to resign following the events of January 6th, a staffer in the House Sergeant-at-Arms office sent a stinging email suggesting that Democratic leadership had made Irving and the Capitol Police Chief Steve Sund, the fall guys, to cover up their failure of leadership to provide adequate security resources. Now, this Just the News piece characterizes all of this as a failure of Democrats to stop it from happening. I believe this isn't pointing to a failure of leadership. This is pointing to deliberate action. They wanted this to occur. They deliberately allowed it to occur. This is what the email read, quote, this is a staffer in the House Sergeant-at-Arms office uh, in the email read, quote, for the speaker's knee-jerk reaction to yesterday's unprecedented event, and God knows how Congress lives for its knee-jerk reactions and to hell with future consequences, to immediately call for your resignation, he's writing this to the House Sergeant-at-Arms, after you have been denied again and again by appropriations for proper security outfitting of the Capitol, and I wrote several of those testimonies, dang it, and to blame you personally because our department was doing the best they could with what they had and our comparatively small department size and limited officer resources and because other agencies stepped in to assist just a fraction too late again for Congress to demand your resignation is spectacularly unjust, unfair and unwarranted, the staffer wrote Irving, according to the email in the report. The staffer added, this is not your fault or son's fault. If anything, appropriations should be hung out to dry. The new report also corroborated prior reporting by Just the News that Capitol Police began receiving specific information 
all the way back in mid-December that there could be significant violence planned against the Capitol and lawmakers by protesters planning to attend the certification of the 2020 election results. The report noted, quote, prior to that day, the U.S. Capitol Police had obtained sufficient information from an array of channels to anticipate and prepare for the violence that occurred. The Capitol Police issued a warning Wednesday night that did not challenge any of the findings of the report, but rather vowed to accelerate changes to improve security. Quote, for for nearly two years, our officers, officials, and civilian employees have been working around the clock to address many of these findings. So the Capitol Hill Police like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know there was a problem, but don't worry, we're working on it. Pelosi's office refused to respond to comment. Banks said the GOP report helps counter the Democrat narrative that ignored security failures by police and political leaders. Quote, our report exposes the partisanship, incompetence, and indifference that led to the disaster on January 6th, and it the leading role, and the leading role, rather, Speaker Pelosi and her office played in the security failure at the Capitol. Unlike the sham January 6th committee, House Republicans produced an actual useful report that will keep out Capitol and USCP officers safe with no subpoena power and no budget. Now, this is also what's very telling about it. The report does not sugarcoat the behavior of those who stormed the Capitol. Quote, on January 6, 2021, criminal rioters assaulted police officers, broke into the U.S. Capitol, damaged property, and temporarily interfered with the certification of states' presidential and vice presidential lecture electors at the joint session of Congress, a typically poor pro forma event, it noted. So what you have, of course, this is the two different approaches. You have the Pelosi-Democrat approach that for the first time in the history of these committees did not let the minority cross-examine any of the witnesses. Nancy Pelosi blocked any questioning into her communication or any sort of uh, efforts that she had with Capitol Police, what she told them to do, what she told them not to do. And everybody on their side was pure as the driven snow. Everybody who was a Trump supporter was evil. While the Republican report, with no subpoena power, no budget, found actual evidence, and at the same time, they're not covering for the rioters. They're not claiming that those individuals should not be held accountable who broke the law. They're approaching it from an objective perspective. The most explosive revelations in the report involve text and email messages showing that two key staffers in Pelosi's office attended regular meetings discussing the security plans for January 6th, dating back to early December, and that Pelosi's top aide even edited some of the plans. Most of those discussions and meetings excluded Republican lawmakers in the House, the report noted. And I wonder why that would be. Why is it you would have essentially secret meetings in the weeks leading up to these events in which on a weekly basis here in Pelosi's office is being told, we believe that there's going to be some sort of attempt by some people to storm the Capitol to do what it is that Democrats do whenever there's a Kavanaugh hearing or an Amy Comey Barrett hearing, but it's going to be flipped around. The script is going to be flipped on us, and they are going to take a cue from their action, and they are going to try to disrupt proceedings by coming into the Capitol. Why would you keep that information secret from Republicans? Why your 
planning on how to deal with that? Would you keep secret from Republicans? Now, I can think of one potential explanation. Because you did not want them to know that you were going to sit by and allow it to happen. You did not want them to know that law enforcement was going to be instructed to open the doors to let in a flow of individuals. Because, of course, Republicans would have said, you plan on doing what? And, of course, we all know what the motivation would be in order to do that. To essentially turn this country into a police state, make it illegal to support anyone other than Democrats, and allow Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, the FBI, probably the CIA, characterize Trump supporters as white supremacists, and that being the single greatest danger to the national security of this country. Springfield's Talk 104.1, I'm Nick Reed. You're listening to Nick Reed in the Morning on Springfield's Talk 104.1. Don't forget all your home loan needs. Maybe thinking about bigger homes, smaller homes. You host Christmas. You visit someone else for Christmas. Maybe you empty nesters. But the time is you don't. You got too much house, not enough. I want a great home loan.com. My, my advice, step number one, before you even look at a house, like, oh, there's an open house. Well, let's just look at it for fun. You fall in love with it. You think, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. But you haven't gotten that approval yet. And someone else has. So guess what? Forget it. You're out of the game. I want a great home loan.com, the first step. Among all the Twitter file dumps that we've seen, it has become very, very clear that the FBI and the CIA had infiltrated, among other organizations, Twitter. Now, they all did it as former employees, but we learned yesterday in a piece in The Federalist about what's called sheep dipping, and that is where you have these organizations, though they may use different names, and the military largely used that that title for it. They would take people uh, and then officially uh, relieve them of their governmental duties and then actually unofficially give them governmental duties to do. And then, of course, if they got caught, disavow their association. And that's what, by all appearances, it looks like was occurring with these different entities. And you had the FBI and, and other government uh, officials that were utilizing their, uh, their, their position in these Uh, social networking outfits in order to interfere with the election, alter the outcome of the election. And we know for a fact, because of much of the information that's been released by Elon Musk, that the FBI was lying. You had people that were FBI lying to the decision makers at Twitter about Russian misinformation, convincing them that, that this was all misinformation. So do you know what their response is to all of this? Now that all of the the, the the proof in the emails has been released, well, of course, what would be the perfect response? They're claiming it's misinformation. That people are out there, these nefarious forces spreading misinformation about what it was that they were doing and telling us, don't worry, trust us, everything's fine. The worst sort of corruption is exposed corruption that continues to be corrupt. I'll see you tomorrow at Scramblers in all likelihood. Glenn Beck's next. I'm Nick Reed.